Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. You'll be hearing from Nancy Lasord, the daughter-in-law of the late Catherine Marshall, who wrote A Man Called Peter, about her late husband and former U.S. Senate chaplain Peter Marshall. She also wrote the book Christy, a novel based on the true story of her mother, published 50 years ago, now being re-released. Then it's Stan Jantz of the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, which will now present the annual Christie Awards, named after that legendary book, honoring excellence in Christian fiction. Also, you'll be hearing from husband and wife Kevin and Sam Sorbo. They've released a movie called Let There Be Light, containing a message of hope with a storyline centered around a famous atheist who experiences a life-changing event. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll meet Eric Motley of the Aspen Institute, a former special assistant to President George W. Bush. He is from Montgomery, Alabama, and offers a picture of hope in a memoir called Madison Park. Plus, from Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, it's teaching pastor and author Eric Bryant, who encourages Christians to embrace people who are different than we, a concept expressed in his book, Not Like Me. Finally, Mark Meckler of Citizens for Self-Governance regarding a recent decision in which the U.S. Justice Department agreed to provide payments to groups, including a number of Tea Party, conservative, and Christian groups who were targeted by the Internal Revenue Service. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Nancy Lasord is daughter-in-law of the late Catherine Marshall, who was once married to the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, Peter Marshall, before he passed away. She wrote the book about him, A Man Called Peter, and also wrote a novel based on the experiences of her mother called Christy, which was released 50 years ago. That book has now been re-released, and to talk more about that story, here is Nancy Lasord. The story is absolutely wonderful, and it's uh, really a time for today as well. It's about a young person at the age of 18, 19, who has a passionate, inspirational moment when she hears about the needs of children in Appalachian Mountains and the need for teachers. And uh, this young woman uh, decides that she is going to leave everything familiar and takes the courageous step of getting on a train and going from Asheville, North Carolina, to the mountains of Tennessee, uh, where time really kind of stood still. Uh, these were Scottish Highlanders. They had their own ways of doing things for generations. And here comes Christie, ready to uh, uh, take on a challenge of teaching. And at the same time, of course, she has her own ideas about how to make life better for the folks in Cutter Gap. And so this is a story. It, it's a really tight story in time. It's a year of uh, Christie's life. But the a number of events and the things that happen in that year are, well, the book is chock full, let me just put it that way, of lots of stories and challenges. And uh, because of the nature of the people, there was everything from dealing with massive superstitions to feuding to uh, the whole moonshine business of that era that was an economic mainstay. And uh, she had to. She was really challenged, not only in her faith. She had um, had a uh, Christian faith grown up in in her family, but Christy now had to make this her own. And uh, she had a mentor, in the name of uh, uh, Miss Alice. She was a Quaker woman who traveled among three schools that were established there. And uh, the relationship between Christy and Miss Alice is fabulous in the book. And then, of course, there are two men. There is. 
Dr. McNeil, who, uh, although raised in the Cove and one of the the uh, people from that community, he had um, had the opportunity to go to medical school uh, because he had befriended some hunters who came, and he was their guide, and they took an interest in him. So he's both of the community and outside the community, and he has his thoughts about what's best for the people of Cutter Gap. And then there's the young preacher, David, who has uh, come uh, also with the same kind of inspirational desire as Christy to make a difference in Cutter Gap. And it's very interesting to see how their three, Christy, Dr. McNeil, and David's views of how to uh, live in community and work with the people in the community and love them, how they were really different. And they can, as you can imagine, that might have created some, some uh, conflicts uh, because they were so different. Let's talk just a bit about the faith themes. Share how Christie's faith impacted her and how that's communicated here in the novel. Well, it's it's really wonderful because I, I think of Miss Alice in a way as a, a type of the Holy Spirit who is kind of holding the mirror up to Christie on many of her thoughts about God, about faith, about how faith works practically when you're faced with challenges. And, um, you know, so there's this figure throughout the book that um, uh, that uh, actually Catherine Marshall based on Hannah Whitehall Smith. Um, and it, it's, it's a, a lovely interchange of wisdom and questions, because Miss Alice doesn't answer Christie's questions. She just helps Christie face her questions and then go and deal with them. And when, you know, Christie faces a lot, she faces unnecessary death of young infants. She faces the challenges of, um, of evil. Um, she faces the loss of dear friend um, through um, illness and uh, has a lot of questions about, is God good and, and is he here? Is he present in my circumstances? Um, and I love the way that Christy doesn't um, tie everything up in a nice even package. Nancy Lasord here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the book by going to christybook.com. The Intersection continues now with the Executive Director of the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. His name is Stan Jantz, and in our recent conversation, he shared some insight into the power of Christian fiction in association with the November 8th Christie Awards Gala in Nashville, correlating with the Art of Writing Conference. Here now is Stan Jantz. Now people primarily will buy their books online. Amazon sells 42% of all books, whether it's through electronic means or, or through uh, paper. And that's just one company doing all of that. So it's a, it's a significant force. So, but the second thing, Bob, would be 10 years ago, this little device called the iPhone was released. And uh, what this has done, it's brought the world into our fingertips. Um, and we kind of take it for granted now, but in the last 10 years, it's revolutionized how people read, how they spend their time. And uh, there's a, a studies now coming out that we are largely not just influenced by our, our devices, but we're distracted. And so reading has taken on a different format. People tend to read more on their phones. And so as publishers, we're all adjusting to this reality, but also trying to help people also realize that there is a, uh, an important place for 
what we would call long-form reading. In other words, instead of reading in bits and bytes, you know, skimming your screen to look for news and information, actually getting into a book and reading it. And we're seeing that that's starting to take effect, that people are realizing how important it is uh, to read uh, in a way that uh, allows that content to get into your life and to really absorb what it is rather than just kind of snippets here and there. But yeah, it's, it's a great change, but we're, you know, there's also great opportunity and publishers are looking for, for what they can do to reach people uh, with great books. You know, the Bible is really a story. Now it's a true story, but it's still a story. And it tells us the story of God and the story of his creation and the story of us, his created beings and what his plan is for us. But it's, it's dramatic. And it goes from Genesis to Revelation. And there's just hundreds and hundreds of, of stories about real people and what they experienced and, uh, and what we need to know in order to, you know, relate to God who is, uh, has a plan for us. So, so storytelling is, a, is an absolutely uh, beautiful way to, to, to really talk about the truth about God. And it, it goes back in the Christian tradition, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years in terms of the books we write. Of course, publishing is relatively new. You know, we're celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. October 31st, 1517 is when the Reformation was officially launched with Martin Luther nailing his uh, 95 theses on the wall. And uh, really, it was the printing press that had only been around for a few decades when that, uh, when that event occurred, that earth-shattering event. And it was the printing press that allowed the message, not just the Reformation, but the Scriptures, to go out uh, throughout Europe and the farthest corners of the world. And it was a technology that was so revolutionary because it allowed books now to be printed and to be printed in mass. And now 500 years later, we are going through a similar revolution, and that's a revolution of technology, of digital, and books going out, again, to the farthest corners of the world and, and through barriers that, uh, you know, would not be penetrable by, um, you know, paper books. And so we see publishing has always been God's way of getting his truth out, whether it's through his scripture or through books about the Bible. And, and stories, and we call them fiction, because they're, they're made up, but great fiction is based in truth, and the plots are real. And, and so the Christie Award, and you, you mentioned that you've had uh, Nancy Lasorde you've interviewed. Her, her uh, mother-in-law, Catherine Marshall, as you said, uh, wrote the book Christie. It was released 50 years ago, uh, uh, almost to the day that we'll have our Christie Award uh, gala in Nashville. And it really set the bar for what good fiction can be. People are very discriminating when it comes to reading stories. They want not just you know, stories and plots that are interesting and exciting, but they want good characters and good plots that are developed and that they're realistic. And again, even though we're reading something made up, it could be based in truth, it could be based on real life, but it, it tells the truth about God in very, very uh, powerful ways. So that's what we, we say, Bob, that's the power of story. Story has a, has a way of, of uh, getting through to people sometimes in a way that nonfiction does not. And so we're just excited to bring best of the best of fiction books written over the past year and to recognize in nine different categories those uh, those books that uh, were were deemed to be uh, worthy of a Christie Award. And the Christie will have a book of the year as well, which will be the best of all of the different categories that will be presented uh, on November 8th. Stan Jantz of the writing duo Bruce and Stan, along with Bruce Spickle. You can learn more about the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association by going to ecpa.org. Find out about the Christie Awards by going to christieawards.com. 
Well, this is the Intersection Podcast with husband and wife team Kevin and Sam Sorbo involved with the movie Let There Be Light in various capacities, including appearing on screen. In a recent conversation, they discussed the concept and plot of the film, its message, and the importance of attending movies that support Christian values. From that conversation, here are Kevin and Sam Sorbo. I got tired of, of seeing what was coming out of Hollywood, and I stopped. I kind of stopped watching movies and television for quite a while, actually. And then one day, it occurred to me, gee, I wonder what it would look like if like, the world's greatest atheist had sort of a crisis of faith, and what might bring about that crisis of faith. And I thought, maybe a near-death experience, and sort of seeing some vision or something. And I, I worked on the details a little bit. I thought, this would make a movie that I would want to see. And I thought, why not try? Why not try to write it? So I called Dan Gordon, who's a very well-known screenwriter. He wrote *The Hurricane* with Denzel Washington and *Wyatt Earp* with Kevin Costner. And I and I said, Hey, Dan, you know, I've got an idea for a screenplay. Would you consider writing it with me? And of course, he said no, because as I said, he's a very well-known screenwriter. <laughs> but when he heard the idea, he said, "I'm in." And then two weeks later, Sean Hannity called my husband out of the blue and said, "I want to do a faith-based movie, and I want to work with you. Do you have anything?" And so, of course, Kevin said, well, I, I actually do. And the three of us, Dan, Kevin, and I flew to New York, pitched Sean, and within 20 minutes, half an hour, Sean was in, full in. He funded the entire project, sent us on our way, and said, bring me back a movie. Kevin, you are in the starring role, this this man to whom your wife was referring, the, the world-famous atheist who has a, well, a near-death experience, a life-changing experience. Tell me just a bit about your character. Well, you kind of talk about it right now. It's sort of like a Dawkins Hitchens. He, yeah. he loves and relishes just attacking anybody who has any kind of faith. That's where he shines. But uh, when, the, when the cameras are off and the lights are off, and uh, that's when the darkness always hits him, and he... He's a very miserable man. His son had died uh, at the age of eight, and that broke up the marriage he had with his wife. And there was already a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of battles between them anyway. But that was sort of the the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, and that set him on his uh, really rise to fame and in the, the negative world. But he turns to alcohol, he turns to drugs, he turns anything to sort of deaden the pain and the anger that he has towards a god that he doesn't believe in. And uh, this worldview has changed completely when he has uh, uh, an event happen to him where he has a vision. And uh, the only person who really understands him is his ex-wife. And he goes to her basically on his knees and says, look, I don't know what's going on in my life. And she's, uh, she's there to help him. She's there to help try to guide him back to, to, to that light, that the very long, dark tunnel that he's been living his life in. And uh, it's, it's really a, ultimately a love story, this movie, but it really deals you know, with the with the anger and the hate and the divisiveness, even what this country is going through now, and it just sort of represents a lot of that and shows, you know, there's a way to, to get together and not have all the hate that we have going on in the world. And it really reaches out to fathers. I mean, as Sam has said a multiple times that she's found out in the screenings we've had and talking to people that as well as, as much women love this movie, it has really spoken and really had a positive response from men out there because they can relate to my character quite a bit. This is a movie that shows that ultimately, like I said, it's a love story where things can turn around, things can get better, and it shows the importance of having a, a father being involved with the kids as well. And um, it's, it's, hopefully it's a road that some people will look at, and like I said before, that's why men identify to this, because they know they feel guilt. They know, you know, we travel too much. I travel too much. You know, so I, only lately I've been taking more of my, one or two of my kids along with me on some of my quick business trips. It, it's important to have that family element, and people think that's old, you know, 
old-fashioned. What's old-fashioned about it? What's old-fashioned about having something that uh, is, is positive? I mean, I get stopped all the time now for my faith-based movies, not for Hercules or Andromeda. People say, please make more movies like this. Well, mm-hmm. here we are making wow. it, but you guys, we're independent to a degree. You need to support it. What do you want people to take away from this film, Let There Be Light? Well, there's one big takeaway that I that I think everybody walks away with, and that is hope. And that's what the movie... That, that's really the, the underlying message of the movie, is that there is hope. There is a light that shines into the darkness, that dispels the darkness, and it's the antidote for the darkness. And so you talk about what's coming out of Hollywood. I mean, the scandals that are coming out, that, that uh, there's, this, there's been this bullying, this, this um, manipulation, this, uh, this misbehavior. The messaging that's coming out of Hollywood is you only live once, take what you want, Sometimes you'll have to pay for it, but go for it anyway. Bullying is the, you know, survival of the fittest. It's the law of the land. And, and I'm pushing back against that message. The, the, I'm pushing back against that because, because I, I see in that the, the end of our culture as we know it. If, if we subscribe to survival of the fittest, then there's no reason to obey the law. There's no reason to be kind to other people. It's survival of the fittest. And so this movie is really just an example of pushing back against that. Kevin and Sam Sorbo here on The Intersection. Learn more about the film by going to letthereBeLightMovie.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and the website address is meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, I had a chance recently to chat with Eric Motley. He serves as Executive Vice President of the Aspen Institute. He was once a former special assistant to President George W. Bush. He's a former resident of Montgomery, Alabama, and he shared about the community in which he was raised and the faith that was modeled relative to his book, a memoir called Madison Park, A Place of Hope. This is Eric Motley now. Everyone talks about what's broken. Everyone talks about what isn't working. Everyone talks about the failure of communities and neighborhoods. And this is a wonderful story, in my opinion, about a community and a neighborhood that works, that worked, that continues to work, and that had an enormous influence in my life by uh, rallying around me and providing me a safety net at a critical moment in my life when I was actually failing in school. And uh, if anything, it's a story of inspiration. It's a story about reclaiming the American spirit and working together. You know, Martin Luther King once wrote, we're all a part of an inescapable network of mutuality, that we're tied in a single garment of destiny. What affects your neighbor affects you. And so this is really about a neighborhood, a community uh, that from its very beginning was about supporting each other. Tell me how it is that that faith that was modeled for you during your years growing up in Madison Park in Montgomery really has impacted your life and and informed the course of your life even to this day. You know, I, I had a childhood minister who once said to me that you're a child of God. 
And he has equipped you well enough to do what he wants you to do. And you just need to listen and pay attention. And it was his own expression of God's faith, but his faith in me as an individual that was created by God that really inspired me to realize that I, I have a role to play. And, uh, and my grandparents were really thoughtful in removing distractions. They were all about my being focused on the task before me. Faith was very important in my upbringing. And so faith was not just my belief in God, but it was my belief in my own abilities that God had given me. And so part of my responsibility was to discover those abilities, realize those abilities, and what a sin it would be not to use those gifts and those abilities. And so all along the way, this sense of purpose and this sense of mission and this sense of fulfilling uh, your purpose that was designed by God has been kind of a self-perpetuating theme. Um, you, you use your gifts brightly, and, and you do all that you can um, to use them in a way in which you're glorifying Christ, and so uh, unashamedly. And so I, I was not good at sports, but I was good at school. <laughs> I, um, there are weaknesses that I have, but there are strengths that I focus on. And so I think one of the things that I've discovered throughout my own journey is um, that God does provide, and that when I listen to him and I seek his will and his direction, things uh, make sense. They become a lot more clear. And so if anything, I think if you read this book, you come to appreciate that my journey has been one of grace and gratitude. And all along the way, because this is not a solo experience, mind you, all along the way, there have been people at every turning that have affirmed my belief in self, that have affirmed my belief in God, that have affirmed my belief in my having something to do that's important. And, uh, and they've been there. There have been Sunday school teachers, teachers at Capitol Height, teachers at Robert E. Lee, teachers at Samford. Uh, individuals who uh, took extra time in my community realizing that there were gifts that I had that needed to be worked on, who helped me to, to prone those skills or develop those skills more thoughtfully and to help me to realize how I could use them in a more impactful way. And so I, this has been an incredible journey. And, and to my good fortune, there have been people who've reached out to me all along the way and have held up the signs pointing me in the direction that I should go and encouraging me and cheering me on and helping me to realize my deficiencies, uh, my weaknesses, and, um, and helping me to realize my own humanity, my humanity uh, in, in, in its breath, but also the fragileness of my uh, humanity. Um, that um, we're all sinners, and none of us are perfect, um, but we're constantly striving to be more like Christ. And that's been a great inspiration mm -hmm. to me. And, uh, and how could I abandon it now? <laughs> Eric Motley here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the book by going to madisonparkbook.com. The Intersection continues now with Eric Bryant, campus pastor at Gateway South, a campus of Gateway Church in Austin, Texas. In our conversation, he shared material on loving people in the way that Christ loves relative to his book, Not Like Me, Love, Serve, and Influence Our Divided World. 
Here now is Eric Bryant. I had a chance to uh, grow up as part of the church here in the South. I was in Texas growing up. But I ended up growing to going to Seattle, Washington. And so I ended up being a part of a church that was really more connected with people who had no church background. And so that definitely began to change my experience of being a, a pastor. And it became more and more diverse, and, and not just ethnically, but as I said, spiritually ba- uh, background was very different. And then part of a church in Los Angeles, and I was uh, one of the few Caucasian uh, pastors, uh, the only Caucasian elder. And so really being a part of these communities on the West Coast uh, really started helping me realize how different my childhood experience was from my adult experience and really understanding that we can create communities where people can belong before they believe where people are welcome, as we say here at Gateway in Austin, they can come as they are. And really, it's in a context of building relationships with people who look differently, vote differently, might even believe differently or make different moral choices that we actually have the opportunity to point them towards faith and towards Jesus. And it's in the context of those relationships. And too often, those of us who follow Jesus actually stay away from relationships with people who are different than us, when in reality we're called and sent out into those relationships. What have you found to be some of the challenges that you face, and how are you able to, well, as we might say, get past the barriers that people might have to really even consider Christianity? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things that we can all do is to understand the true meaning of the word church. Now, unfortunately, the word church has become what we call the building or what we call the service. And in reality, the church is made up of those of us who follow Jesus. And there's this interesting point in the scriptures where Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, when you gather together, don't forget about the unbeliever in your midst. And so there's this assumption that when believers gather together, it's actually okay. And it was a part of the culture in the early church for for skeptics and and people who are uncertain to actually be a part of those gatherings. And so part of the challenge we have in a world where more and more people did not grow up as part of the church or more and more people have moved here from other countries without a Christian background, we have to create experiences that still look at the scriptures, that still sing to Jesus, but explain throughout the, the experience why we do what we do, and not to assume everybody is coming from the same place. And in many ways, if you think of it as the same way that we reach our children, you know, we allow them to belong in our homes, uh, even if they don't believe, and we just continue to love them. And when the time is right, have hard conversations with them. Uh, But it's in the midst of relationship and allowing them to be part of what we do together on Sundays, allow them and in fact, invite them, encourage them to be a part of initiatives serving the city. All of a sudden, as you even said earlier, inviting them into our home, you know, creating a space where people are in our life, where we're intentionally being missionaries. And the best way to do that is to develop those relationships. And part of why the subtitle goes in the order that it does, if we can love people, if we can serve people, it's then that we'll be able to influence them. And to me, that's a real important part of this process of 
creating relationships, and even evaluating, am I being intentional about getting to know my coworkers, getting to know my neighbors? And it doesn't have to be a spiritual conversation from the beginning. It could start superficial, but then it could turn into something more significant and even spiritual as you get to know the person, as you offer to pray for them in the midst of a crisis, uh, and as you hear more about their spiritual journey. Eric Bryant here on The Intersection. The website address is ericbryant.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Mark Meckler, president of the organization Citizens for Self-Governance. He discussed a settlement announced by the U.S. Justice Department in which the U.S. government agreed to provide payments to groups, including a number of Tea Party, conservative, and Christian groups who were targeted by the Internal Revenue Service. From that conversation, this is Mark Meckler. The IRS itself, unbelievably, was targeting virtually every sort of liberty group you can imagine. If you had Tea Party in your name, Patriots, Liberty, if you're complaining about the policies of the U.S. government during the Obama administration, anything like that, they cast a pretty wide net. We're targeting those groups for discrimination, harassment, specifically on their political viewpoints. Well, what sorts of harassment were being reported with respect to these various groups? You know, when I tell you, (laughs) some of it's so unbelievable, it just sounds like it can't be true. For example, they were asking some of the groups to list the content of the prayers that were said at the opening of their meetings. Some groups were asked, what books were you recommending your your, uh, attendees read? What were the contents of speakers' speeches? In our case, my, my local group is the NorCal Tea Party. We were asked to send to the IRS a copy of anything ever given out to anybody who ever attended one of our tea parties. That included, by the way, red, white, and blue stuffed Beanie Baby Bears that we had given out at one of the tea party meetings. We had to send one of those to the IRS. So this was in the process, as I understand it, of perhaps filing for a, a 501c4, 501c3 type organization in the application process. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's a process that normally takes somewhere between a, a month and a couple of months to, to go through. And I think the last of these just got approved in the last couple of months, meaning it took them over four years. But it, it was literally years long at a minimum for these groups. Well, and this is something that really attracted quite a bit of news coverage. I would dare say not enough in the political climate that was surrounding what took place here. But this became something that there was was quite a bit of attention that was given to it. So as you look at the the Internal Revenue Service, as these charges were were being made, as people were coming forward, what were some of the responses coming from the IRS? Uh, it literally, the best way I can describe it was delay, obfuscation, foot dragging, uh, abuse, continuing abuse. In fact, at one point, so my organization, Citizens for Self-Governance, was the third-party funder. We actually weren't even a plaintiff in the litigation. At one point, they dragged our organization in, dragged me personally, and I had to fly to Kansas City, be deposed, cost us over $50,000. What they were trying to say is somehow in funding them, I had some nefarious intent that was separate from the Tea Party motives. But it was just literally abuse and harassment all the way through. These groups coalesced. Citizens for Self-Governance was involved in the funding of it. So how did this suit all come together? Yes, so the way it comes together, and part of it comes from the fact that I am a member of a local Tea Party group in Northern California called the NorCal Tea Party. So I witnessed it up close as the leadership of that Tea Party group was subjected to this harassment. 
I watched it unfold across the country because of my network. I know lots of the Tea Parties across the country. I heard the same harassment going on. We knew it long before the scandal ever broke in public. It broke publicly, and I went out and started reaching out to some of these groups that are liberty litigators, law warriors, to ask if they were going to do anything about it. I saw a lot of them on TV complaining about it, and I saw nothing happening. And so eventually, even though this is not something we normally do as an organization, went to our board and asked if they would be willing to fund the litigation against the IRS. They said yes, and the plaintiffs went and found really great attorneys in, in the center of the country out in Kansas City, uh, good Midwestern values kind of attorneys. Uh, the firm is led by a former U.S. attorney. And they made the determination that the best way to file this case would be on a class action basis because we knew there were lots of plaintiffs who were similarly situated. So that got filed in Cincinnati, which is where all of this took place, the primary uh, what's called the exempt organizations division is located there those are the ones that view those c3 or c4 applications so it was filed there and uh literally it's just been win after win as you go through the litigation as difficult as the irs made it they fought class certification they fought discovery they fought depositions no matter what we tried to do no matter what the lawyers tried to do the irs and the department of justice fought it every step of the way mark meckler here on the intersection You can find out more by going to the website selfgovern.com. The organization is involved with the Convention of States project, and that site is conventionofstates.com. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you'll find a link to the download center. You can also get subscribed to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on social media, specifically Twitter and Facebook, and you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.